You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Just a brief word of introduction to our preacher this evening. Paul Peters Derry will be a familiar face and voice to people who are accustomed to being in this space for worship. But for folks who have only begun to join us through the live stream or join us via podcasts, a brief introduction is in order. Paul has been keeping company with us for five plus years now, but has been in ministry for over 30 years and currently serves in spiritual care at the Victoria General Hospital where he leads up the uh, clinical pastoral education as well, the formation of people in ministry. And when uh, it became apparent that Rachel would need to be away on her health leave, Paul stepped forward and said, let me help, when can I preach? Tonight, Paul, and thank you for doing that. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Trauma, commonly understood as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience and emotional shock following a stressful event or physical injury, is most often applied in a negative sense, post traumatic syndrome, uh, stress disorder, PTSD. We experience or we suffer trauma. The lingering effects take a toll on us. Trauma limits our otherwise carefree existence, unbalancing us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And it's long been assumed that the collective experience of trauma gave rise to the fourth gospel. A couple of generations after Mark, Luke, and Matthew, followers of the way, experienced the trauma of expulsion from synagogue, a community shaped by that trauma, the trauma of being kicked out, the rejected, then became the rejectors. You reject us, and so we'll reject you. An example of that comes in tonight's gospel, where we're told that the disciples were together in the room and the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Given the explosive, even volcanic political context of the first century believers living under Roman military occupation, my sense is that the disciples were more likely fearful of the Roman authorities. And yet, as the story is told a generation or more later, it makes sense because of if we follow the expulsion trauma theory, it makes sense that the John's Gospel would adopt a hostile attitude to those who had kicked us out. 
New Testament scholar Adele Reinhardt challenges the expulsion hypothesis, or at least puts it in a broader context, arguing that there is something more at play here. Yes, the followers of the way were, had been expelled from the synagogue, and yes, that hurt, yes, that was traumatic, and yet what Reinhardt argues is that God's incarnation, the incarnation inserted alongside God's covenant with our Jewish sisters and brothers, such that we too are part of God's promises, what Reinhardt says is that that is the primary trauma that informs this gospel. It's the primary motivating force. Incarnation breaks down boundaries between divine and human realms. Incarnation, it's a good thing, but it forces a choice. It turns things upside down, inside out, all sorts of different directions. Trauma, not only is something that is negative, but trauma, given this example, can be something that is generally viewed in a positive way. As Reinhardt puts it, the incarnation, God's revelation of the word made flesh, is the most exhilarating, life-giving event imaginable. And it means that a new day has dawned a seismic shift, a heaven-to-earth or earth-to-heaven transformation has taken place. Life as we knew it has gone, something for which we have more than a passing familiarity, and we're having to pivot to a whole new way of being, of acting, of relationship. We're told that on this new day, it is now evening, and Jesus appears to the twelve, standing among them, blessing and commissioning them. And those who witness all of this are really quite delighted, understandably, but we're also told that one of the twelve was not present, such that when others announced, we have seen the Lord, Thomas declares, unless I see the mark of the nails on his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. It is significant that John has this story occurring on this first new day. And it's also significant, it's important enough, a story that the lectionary schedules it every year on this second Sunday in Eastertide. It's meant to grab our attention. And the moral of the story, perhaps, captured by the gospel writer's interpretation of Jesus' reprimand to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In other words, don't doubt. Believe. 
And yet I can't shake the longing for this story to offer something more. I'm hoping that it offers something more along the lines of affirming doubt, not as a sign of weakness, but as a evidence, documentable proof of deep and abiding integrity. Like the words offered by Clementine Churchill to her husband, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, as portrayed in the movie The Darkest Hour, the account of Churchill's becoming Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II, the shadowy years, he was everybody's last choice to become Prime Minister, and somehow he was to become their greatest hope. In a particular riveting scene, Churchill is at his deepest pit of depression and exhaustion. Understandably, can you blame him? He's sitting on the side of the bed and he can no more, it seems he can no more pull himself up from the side of the bed than he can marshal allied forces against the invading onslaught. And whether it is factual or whether it is fiction, Clementine reassures, challenges, scolds, and compels Churchill, you are strong because you are imperfect. You are wise because you have doubts. That's part of what I long for in this story. And the story offers something more in how can we not want for ourselves to be graced with first-hand experience of the resurrection. Second-hand accounts are no substitute. As that commercial says, this is not a time for second best. In twinning with the ever-faithful disciple Thomas at the heart of tonight's gospel, second best, doesn't need to be accepted as is. And finally, the story offers something as it resonates of how a new day dawns, how seismic shifts, how the whole world changes, how life as we once knew it is now gone and we're pivoting to a whole new way of being, of action, and of relationship. And in each and every experience of this, God's people always feel a mixture of excitement and unease, anticipation and anxiety, possibilities, and panic. Thomas reminds us of that reality. I am old enough to remember of the 1971 hymn book. It was a hymnary that nobody liked and everybody felt shortchanged by. It was designed as part of the denominational negotiations or merger and vision for the Anglican and United Churches of Canada. And yet, 
even as a hymn book that nobody liked, there were two hymns in particular that caught my youthful attention. One was Sidney Carter's Lord of the Dance. I danced in the morning when the world was begun. And the second was a hymn written by then Dean of Christ Church Anglican Cathedral in Vancouver, Herbert O'Driscoll. From the slave pens of the Delta, from the ghettos of the Nile, let my people seek their freedom in the wilderness a while. So God spoke from out of Sinai. So God spoke and it was done. And a people crossed the waters toward the rising of the sun. When we murmur on the mountains for the old Egyptian plains, when we miss our ancient bondage and the hope the promise wanes, then the rock shall yield its water and the manna fall by night. And with visions of a future shall we march toward the light. In the maelstrom of the nations, in the journeying into space, in the clash of generations, in our hungering for grace, in our agony and our glory, we are called to newer ways by the God of our tomorrows and the God, the Lord, of Earth's todays. It's wonderful how that hymn brings Exodus theology to bear alongside 1960s unsettledness and yet hope that refuses to die. And O'Driscoll's attentiveness to the now leaps off the page with nods to space travel, generational conflict between baby boomers and their parents, Maelstrom of the Nations points to how O'Driscoll wrote the hymn after the 1967 Six Days War, the outbreak of the Irish Troubles and other conflicts requiring the develop, deployment of United Nations peacekeeping forces. From the Slave Pens of the Delta is a hymn for that time. It's a hymn for our time. It's a hymn for every time and place. Proclaiming God's people always feel a mixture of excitement and unease, anticipation and anxiety, possibilities and panic. And one more thing. In preparing this sermon, I came across Herbie O'Driscoll's full name, T. Herbert O'Driscoll, Thomas Herbert O'Driscoll. That'll preach. In the name of God, Father of the fatherless, mother of the motherless, companion, friend, savior, and spirit, for us all. Amen.
This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.